This is How to Reach the West Again, a podcast that aims to inspire and empower a fresh missionary encounter with Western culture. I'm your host, Brandon O'Brien. For the whole of season two, we're talking about cities. What are they? What does the Bible say about them? How do we plant churches there? What does it mean to love our cities? In today's episode, Tim Keller gives a short presentation on city theory. He describes a few schools of thought that theorize about what cities are and how they change, and he draws some conclusions for ministry. Next, I interview Tom Dija, a novelist and nonfiction writer who has written books about two American cities, Chicago and New York. He offers great insights into what makes a city tick and the role each of us plays in changing it for the better. But first, Tim Keller. Hi, this is Tim Keller, and this is a talk, a high-level talk about city theory. So what we're going to do is spend a little time, first of all, looking at the trends that are actually happening out there, but then uh, looking at some of what those theories are and how Christians should be developing their own understanding of how a city changes. The first trend, of course, is enormous growth. Um, that's going to continue pretty much this entire century. And what, what we're going to see is just as in Europe, eventually what happened in Europe and in Australia was about 80, 75, 80 percent of the people live in the cities. Uh, that's happening in North America. It's happening in Latin America. It's actually Amer Latin America is pretty close to that now. It will happen also in uh, Asia and it probably the last place where uh, is Africa, where it's going to take longer there to get to that 75, 80%. Uh, but eventually, by the end of the century, pretty much everywhere in the world, 75, 80% of the people will be living in cities. What's our ministry response? Our ministry response is the people of the world are moving into cities faster than the church is, and the church needs to move into the cities with, with the people. Number two, there's going to be greater connection between the cities. That is to say, the great global cities are going to merge more and more into each other all the time. Uh, they are extraordinarily connected by travel, by technology. More and more, you're going to see the people that live in one great global city. They go to the same schools. They, they, uh, uh, they work for the same companies. They Very often, they eat the same kind of food. Uh, they have a lot of the same values. And uh, therefore, a ministry response here, the second ministry response, which is very important, that is, what City City believes is that we need to stay together. That is, we need to stay connected because there's overlap between successful, effective ministry in one city and effective ministry in another city. That is, if you find a successful urban ministry in Tokyo, uh, that is something that people in Africa and Europe and Latin, and Latin America can learn from because this, the great cities are so much like each other. Number three. Uh, so besides the growth and greater connection, number three, there's going to be greater and greater complexity. Traditionally, cities started from a center that had the greatest density and diversity, uh, that is to say, of, of uh, buildings and operations. So you had more people and you had a mixture of uh, retail and uh, workplace and uh, cultural institutions and government institutions and uh, residences, and you had it all there. And then radiating out from that center, 
you had other sorts of communities, some of which were more dense, some of which were less dense, some of which are more uh, prosperous, some of which are less prosperous. But that's probably going to stop. That is to say, in the future, uh, cities are going to get more and more complicated, more and more complex. You're going to have multiple nucleated cities and multi-nucleated cities, meaning you're going to have cities in which you have more than one center, downtown business center. You're also going to find that the cities are going to become less and less predictable all the time. And that, what is the ministry response here? It won't be enough for you just to love your city, your friends. You're going to have to learn your city. You're going to have to be constant students of your city. One of the dangers of living in a city a long time is you think, well, I understand it. I've been here a long time. When you first move to a city, you learn a lot about it, and then you think you know it. But cities are constantly changing, and therefore you have to be constantly a student of your city. Number four, declining birth rates. What happens in cities is, in general, the birth rates go down in cities because it's expensive, because it's more complicated. So in general, people in cities have, have smaller families or fewer families than people in the countryside or in the towns. And what that does mean for us as ministry uh, leaders is that not only do we have, as churches, do we have to support people who want to get married and raise their children in the city. We have to be very supportive of that, not just assume that that can be done easily. But there's also going to be more singles in cities than in other places, and we have to be just as affirming of them. And that's not easy to do. Uh, to really affirm the singles and to say that really affirm the family, it is not easy to do. And yet that is what we're called to. And lastly, there's just going to be greater economic inequality a shrinking middle class in most cities is still going to be very, very, it's going to be still to a great degree, cities are going to be a mixture of rich and poor. And churches have got to be a way of building bridges so that uh, the, the rich are using their, uh, their wealth to benefit the entire city. Uh, churches are going to have to really be committed to doing justice in their cities and in their neighborhoods. Now, that's the trends. The other thing I wanted to talk to you about are the theories of how cities actually work and change. What's interesting about these theories is to study them so that you can, we can come to our own understanding of how a city works. The Chicago School, which was developed at the University of Chicago, basically sees cities as places where community falls apart. It's a pretty negative view of cities. Um, and it, it's a place where it says people move to cities because they have to, to get jobs, but then their communities fall apart and there's not the same accountability you have in a small town or in a rural area. Uh, the critique of that is that there really is more community in cities than they would like to let on, but they're partly right. Cities can be places of less accountability. It's easier to hide in cities and to be alone and to avoid community in cities than it is in a small town. The second school is the critical urban school, which basically is a Marxist school, which they see city as basically a, a place of oppression place where the rich go to make money, accumulate money, and to basically oppress everybody else. And I, having lived in New York City for now for 32 years, 33 years going on, there's much truth to that. <laughs> there are powerful people who really, in cities, are able to control so much that goes on. And yet, um, it's, a, it's an oversimplification to say the city is a place of nothing but oppression. Uh, there are ways for immigrants, for example, to come here and to start with very little and to, and, and to develop themselves. And, and so it's not as simple as you, the rich just keep the poor down and there's no way to advance. Uh, on the other hand, it's largely true. There's the, the Los Angeles school that sees the city as just incredibly complex, completely uncontrollable, 
totally unpredictable, fragmented and fractured, and you shouldn't try to make it any better. You should just try to survive and enjoy how strange it is. That's the one that I, I think as Christians we have the most trouble with in some ways. I, I feel like it's, uh, it's much more, it, it ends up being a pretty selfish approach, which is to say, uh, kind of enjoy the chaos, you know, get to a place where you can kind of munch on your popcorn and watch it uh, and just try your best to, you know, create your own little enclave of safety. And it's a little too pessimistic, I think, for most Christians, and yet there's something to it. I already mentioned that, that one of the trends is that cities are not that easy to control. Then lastly, there's the urban culturalist school of Richard Florida and others who see the city as a place where you go to develop yourself. And they see it, it's very positive. They see it as a place where you come and you develop yourself and you, um, you, you build cities that really help. The cities of diversity and beauty and where great ideas happen. And this is where, this is where the culture changes. This, this is where the future happens. Very, very positive. Again, uh, it's partly right. It's just partly right. And a, a Christian needs to say, none of these things are ways that cities actually function. We need to be thinking about, well, what is a biblical approach to this? And the answer is, the Bible actually speaks to virtually all of these things. So there probably is a Christian theory of change, a way of saying, here's what we ought to be doing in cities in order to help them in small ways, you know, to change for the better for the people who live in them. One last thing, and it is very last, is I, I will, I'm going to quickly read off a, a little list of what I consider urban skills. So you cannot function in cities without these urban skills, and here they are. Uh, you need to be very culturally sensitive. That is, but you really need to be able to not assume or stereotype people of different cultures, but be very open to them, very sensitive to them, appreciate all of them, uh, know how to do cross-cultural communication, extraordinarily important. You need to be able to teach people how to integrate their faith and their work, because many, many people in cities come in order to work. That's where Richard Florida is right. A lot of people come to cities to make their mark. And you have to be able to show Christians in particular how they aren't here just to get better careers, but to serve people through a Christian integrating their, their faith with their work. Number three, you need to know how to do complex evangelism. There is no one-size-fits-all in the, in the city. You cannot evangelize the same way with everybody. It just isn't, it doesn't work. Number four, you need to understand the very difficult to define ability to connect with urban people. Urban people tend to be more ironic. Urban people tend to have higher production values. Urban people don't like slickness. They like authenticity. Uh, urban people are open to change. There's all sorts of small ways in which there's an urban sensibility that a minister in the city has to learn. And then uh, lastly, I'll just say this, you have to be extraordinarily, extraordinarily connected to your neighborhood. As a pastor of a suburban church, I could assume my neighborhood functioned well, the, the local school was going to work well, that the, this local social services worked well, but you can't assume that in your neighborhoods. And you need to be deeply involved with your neighborhood. Nevertheless, these are all kinds of ways in which we have to be living out what it means to be Christian ministers in the city. Today's guest, Thomas Dija, is a unique student of his city. And he has a theory about how cities work. A novelist and author of two city histories, the first is called The Third Coast, When Chicago Built the American Dream. 
And the second is a book we're talking about today. New York, New York, New York. Four decades of success, excess, and transformation. Tom lives on the Upper West Side of Manhattan and lived there during most of the history he reports in his book. Yeah, pretty much all of it. I came to New York in 1980 to go to college. And, you know, outside of 18 months in Boston, I think uh, it's all been on, you know, it's all been in Manhattan and most of that on the Upper West Side, the same place for the last 25 years. So it comes from a certain amount of lived experience. In the first part of our conversation, Tom offers a survey history of New York City over roughly the last 40 years in four major turning points. In the second part of our conversation, he explains how understanding the city's past helps him better appreciate the present and form a vision for its future. Stay tuned to the end for a practical and hopeful vision for how all of us have a role to play in the flourishing of our cities. Tom's account of New York City begins at the end of the 1970s, when many familiar New York City destinations look very different than they do today. Times Square, which is now one of the world's most popular tourist destinations, was at the time the worst block in town. And Bryant Park, now home to beautiful gardens, free cultural programs, and a famous winter village, was the haunt of drug addicts and other hopeless, forgotten New Yorkers. The city had gotten to a place, and I think an attitude that was kind of supported was that the city was a place where you kind of did whatever you want, wherever you wanted it. Bryant Park was a really great example of that. It was horrible. Um, it was a seedy, frightening place. It had been made that way to a certain degree by, of course, Robert Moses, who, who um, re-renovated it in the 30s so that it was kind of an oasis from the rest of the city. But unfortunately, that created kind of a, a you know, a hiding place. Um, it was kind of cut off from the rest of the city. My favorite detail was reading Malachi Martin, who was a kind of defrocked Catholic priest slash exorcist you know, however you want to go with that. But he wrote, you know, that Bryant Park was where demons went to look for lost souls. And if you're ever around there in the 70s and early 80s, like that's pretty believable. It was really awful. You know, Times Square was, and certainly 42nd Street, um, women really, it was not a, a place for them to be, just not necessarily safety, but certainly in terms of comfort. These were um, dangerous, uncomfortable places that were just kind of handed over. You, you had someone, one of the great, um, inspirations for a lot of things I've been talking about, the kind of movement to bring people back in, to open it up, was a man named Holly White, who was an urbanist, uh, a writer who wrote a book called The Organization Man. And then he went on to um, be someone who is involved in getting Jane Jacobs to be able to write Death and Life of Great American Cities. And he was an urbanist. And what he said, which I think is stuck with me, is that cities exist to um, to make possible the face-to-face -face exchange, exchange between people. And so everything that he advised, and he was really central, and people went to him on these kind of early uh, Bryant Park, certainly in Times Square, was how do we open it up? You know, how do we make this, how do we give the city back to people, really, and make it a place where they come? Because a lot of the problems, I think, even when we look today at the kind of fear that exists, which is maybe not at the same proportion as the reality of it, is um, there are fewer people, or the, you know, in the central business district of New York, it's just not as full as it was. We just don't have the same number of people colliding wonderfully. Now we have more colliding uncomfortably, um, but we don't have that kind of things where we feel like we're in a village. And it's happening in other parts of the city, but it's not happening kind of as much as in Midtown because of the office thing. And so, you know, White is really, I think, um, 
you know, being kind of validated through the troubles we're having in central Manhattan, certainly by that being the joy of the place, that being the energy of it, that kind of pulse of people riding waves, you know, and white was about that. And the, the kind of ideas that spun out of that were really all tap into that. How do we bring more people in to places like Bryant Park, to Times Square, throughout the city to exchange and create and make good connections? Dija's narrative traces four major acts or eras in the city's history that correspond roughly to the administration of four mayors. The first movement he calls Renaissance, beginning in the final years of the 1970s and running through the 1980s under the administration of Ed Koch. You know, Wall Street before the early 80s was kind of 10 to 4 job and, you know, white shoed folks kind of went and it's where your grandparents put their money. Wall Street was not a, a big money spinner in, in a fundamental way. And that that's where we start to talk about the neoliberalism, the economics of this. And, and that was something that Koch, after coming to a city where they were so desperate for money, right, where where they were borrowing money to pay back the debt the interest on money that they were paying the interest on. I mean, it had gotten to that point, right? So suddenly, over almost overnight, and you go through the first couple of years of that Reagan um, uh, recession, basically, in the early 80s, suddenly waves of money come, waves of money, you know, and the city suddenly has all kinds of cash. And and I think the Kachus kind of roll, tap into that and roll ahead with like, oh my gosh, we have all this, we've got to ride this. And he looks, he works with, or at least parallel with Mario Cuomo, who's governor for much of this time, and puts um, basically a huge amount of money behind affordable housing and housing creation, which to me lays the groundwork of change that happens after this. You know, and you, you can't talk about safety in neighborhoods when there aren't neighborhoods, but when you suddenly have people, again, Holly White, people in those places, that, that changes. But his, his real Achilles heel was, was on race. I think he made the city a much more divisive place um, by looking at economics and and public policy in a in a way that for someone who's supposed to be a liberal Democrat or even a centrist Democrat was you know his attitude towards Harlem towards Black Brooklyn really uh, regretful. Turning point two, Dija calls reconsideration, a short period in the early 1990s that correspond with the administration of David Dinkins, New York City's first African American mayor. So the Dinkins years, you know, are kind of a, a a reconsideration of because by the end of Koch, you've gone through Black Monday, the, the market has crashed and is this feeling like we've gone up, you know, big sugar rush, basically. We've gone up, the city's gone crazy, and then it crashes again. And, and Dinkins is for a while a walk back to some of those policies that were considered much more liberal, that are about getting money and attention into the neighborhoods, um, supporting people of color. And the reality is that the, the comeback that the city makes is really that the, the foundation is laid there. Um, the crime that has gone through the roof by the end of the Koch years, once Dinkins comes in, it begins to go down Every, you know, in every precinct, in every category, every month, it just goes down, 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 down. Um, You know, Bratton comes in um, for the transit police. The ideas that end up being enacted on the streets during Giuliani are worked on in the subways during Dinkins. And and a lot of the, the, the idea of not just making the city safe, but making people feel safe is done and started in the subways. It's also the period of, of culture wars, the beginning of all of that kind of discourse about multiculturalism really is happening 
under Dinkins, and it begins there. Turning point three are the Rudy Giuliani years, a period Dijah calls Reformation. The people really who are behind Giuliani, that the sense is as much as the city is out of control, it's that people who have been in control are no longer in control. So when we look at Giuliani, um, you know, this is after the Crown Heights riot, which is obviously a sign of something not being under control. Giuliani, along with, you know, takes advantage of that, of the squeegee men, of that kind of sense of, 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 uh, you know, kind of chaos in the city, which was obviously gets pumped up because it's election time. And Giuliani moves in, kind of built on a lot of those ideas that Koch had been, that had been put forward. They were turning into a way to control the city and control people, as opposed to what we talked about at the beginning, that Holly White, let's throw it out there and let's see what happens. You know, you know, Holly White was not somebody who would ever, he would say one or two people, you know, unhoused people in a park, that's really not a problem. You know, 10 is. And, and so the idea of clean sweeps or something like that, you know, he was about creating an ecosystem, a, a place where there's some space for everyone. We just have to figure out kind of the right balance to make this work, as opposed to zero tolerance. These kind of phrases we get under Giuliani, where there's this um, comp stat and the kind of sense of policing as being a uh, somehow a perfectible thing that you're actually going to be able to get rid of it. And every week, every month, your precinct had to come up and and deliver, which was great accountability spread across the whole department. But it also created a drive to not necessarily create safety for people, but to create numbers for the police officers. That led us into some very, very, very dark and dangerous places for the city as a whole and for people um, who were not necessarily being seen by many other people in the city. So the Giuliani years are a kind of reformation. It's a sense of we're going to take, and I mean that in a kind of Savonarola kind of way, you know, we're going to take control of this city and run it. And at the beginning, it felt kind of good because he was so driven. You know, he was, he was somebody who was working um, around the clock, uh, you know, to, to, to just make the city better. He rode in on a lot of things that had already been happening with, um, you know, under Dinkins and kind of rolled them forward. The housing changes had already been going on, neighborhoods coming back. So when, you know, Malcolm Gladwell writes this piece in The New Yorker about cities being streets being full again and kids on bikes and stuff. Well, you know, 10 years before there hadn't been any houses there. You know, there were no stoops for old people to sit on. There were no kids on bikes. These were vacant lots. And so the fact that the people were there was a, a causal thing for the safety being there as well as the police. So um, that was, you know, that's kind of up to the long play on, on Giuliani, I think. The final act in Tom Dige's account is reimagination. Michael Bloomberg's mayorship from 2001 to 2013. Bloomberg's years marked both an economic shift and a new approach to managing the chaos of New York City. Right, right. You know, you had um, basically, you know, the part of the end of Giuliani is also the tech boom. You know, this was the Yankees were winning the greatest team ever. It was safer than it ever was. We had a new economy that did not really um, rely on an industrial things the same way. Right. So it was going to be the new tech economy and everyone was going to you know, by Qualcomm and be billionaires, right? So it was all perfect. And then, of course, it collapsed in, in many, many ways. And then there was 9-11, which, ha which happens in a recession, basically. 
Um, and, and Bloomberg, who is a complete dark horse, I mean, no one expects him to become mayor, ends up being mayor. And um, he brings in a, a kind of surprising group of, of people, really, and turns the page in some positive ways from the Giuliani years. He brings in people into office, you know, kind of his his kitchen table people and in the administration, pushing um, accountability in a kind of in a positive way, a kind of business structure of accountability. We're going to get things done. Um, and some very, you know, I think forward looking thinking about how the city now has to exist in, in a technical digital mindset, because that's where he'd made his billions of dollars. Problem, you know, is that this envisioning of the city as a kind of luxury city, which is something that I think he says in in you know not the way it's necessarily taken. I think what what he was saying was this is a place that the glories of New York are that it should attract the best and the brightest of the world. That's a good thing. I think we can all agree that that is we want to create jobs and 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 culture and all this good stuff, you know, that that it is a place we should be aspiring to be the greatest place to be. Um, the downside of that was that it, it, the sense was we're going to now kind of make everything happen to attract those people. You know, it's a kind of old theory of like the city exists to draw in capital versus a place that's kind of trying to grow its own. And this was a, a dressed up fancier version of that. but. Um, it really did. We get a sense during the Bloomberg years. I certainly did. I know a lot of other people did that. Everything that was happening was suddenly about bringing in tourists, about bringing in investment, about, you know, we talked less about schools and more about, you know, huts and yards, which exist for, you know, tourists. It's the, the sense of, of rebuilding the city for us. We really, really started to lose control of. And by the end, I think people really feels it slips out of our grasp. And the city exists for Russian oligarchs who live in super talls and that this is the point. And on the ground, that safety that exists and grows during the Bloomberg years, you know, we see is, or at least we're told it's the product of the policing that's going on. And the reality of the numbers is that um, it was very oppressive. It was destructive in a lot of parts of the city. And um, what it produced was, I think, hard to measure or defend. You know, once it went away, that sense, you know, Commissioner Kelly, oh, my God, the city's going to become a dystopian hellscape. And guess what? It, it didn't. You know, crime continued to go down after stop and frisk was gone. So um, what what was really underlying that change? I think we still haven't fully mined. And at this moment, when we're talking so hard and loud about crime, every conversation starts with it now. But then you pull out the numbers, you're like, yes, here are some things that are up here are some things that are down. It's not it, it is not as clear as and nothing like it was in the past. And so we need to have some really deep conversations about what is really happening going forward, not just with crime, but how we talk about crime. OK, so there's the overview. Dija's New York, New York, New York is a sometimes dizzying account of the city's chaos and change over the last 40 years. I highly recommend it. But in addition to the historical sweep of the story, I wanted to know what, in Tom Dija's opinion, really makes New York City tick. What is a city when you get right down to it? When I sold this book, you know, the idea of the book, that my editor kind of set me off on a journey because I really didn't have the answers. You know, I said, I want to, I want to figure out this stuff. So they, about his flyer, let me figure it out. And so, 
you know, I, tr- I kind of started with different um, models, kind of different mindsets of how um, the city functioned and how we got to some of these things, right? How we found people who were, um, came up with these ideas, pushed these policies. And it became really, really clear, really early that you couldn't just say good guys, bad guys, black, white, you know, especially in New York, when when you talk about that policy level or that city level, you're also talking about an entire world of nonprofits, philanthropy, all kinds of organizations that are around it, that support it, that that have people coming in and out of, of City Hall and out of City Hall who are just the that whole scape, ecoscape that surrounds the city management that drifts into the streets. And you find people on different topics in different places. And, you know, I could look at David Rockefeller and say, bad guy, David Rockefeller, you know, and then you see he turns up here and he does that. And there are some interesting ideas and conversations and involvement that made it really hard to just say good, bad on things, you know, and that brought me back to that generation of people who were looking at things and saying, what's going to work? How can this work? How do we figure out how to make this, this work? And so a lot of that work is not done when things are smashing into each other, you see more and more that it is, as I was kind of reconceiving of what it was, that there are, you know, and falling back to kind of social network theory of that is how the city is built, not between blocks of interest, but between networks. When we talk about early 20th century, we're talking about unions, we're talking about the church, we're talking about um, kind of big blocks of interest, parties and stuff. And over time, um, that that erodes, you know, labor power becomes a more diffuse thing. Um, the, a lot of those things culturally just begin to not disintegrate, but but come apart. And we're approached more as individuals. And once we get to technology, when we get to the internet, when we get to um, you know TV, everything along the way, it all drives us to kind of personal interests which is great. It's us creating our own networks, our own kind of affinity groups and things like that. But it also takes away our individual power in a lot of ways as well. You know, and that idea of of everyone getting in there and voting in a certain way, everyone getting in there and striking, everyone getting in there and and really showing the power of, of people together, that gets lost. And unfortunately, I do think that, that there's a tier of people who were onto that and have preyed on that to no small degree, that kind of picking people off by their affinities as opposed to saying, listen, we're all in this boat and we need to work together on that. And so that is something you see, that th- those are certainly the negatives of it, the positives of it are a rethinking of culture. You know, and that is when we talk about multiculturalism, as opposed to the sense of of there being one culture and everything else is kind of weirdly attached to the side, even though that one culture is very much defined by a small group of people who have an awful lot of things in common. The great thing about multiculturalism is that it opened us up, you know, and that idea of that progress in the arts is all about that one path. Suddenly we are blown up into seeing all these other ways of thinking and being. Um, other cultures, other genders, other things, you know, in in culture now is as opposed to worrying about an avant-garde, a phrase you don't hear a lot anymore. Um, Frankly, it's about trying to make paths and connections between all these other ways of being, which is fabulous, but it's really hard and it's scary and it's challenging. And, you know, uh, we're still looking for guides to help us through, you know, and that is in a way to me how I try to look at 
artists who are working in those spaces as guides through different planets. That's the good part of, of that kind of network. To me, a city really functioning is it's kind of the, the model I eventually came to was kind of like a brain, you know, where you just have billions of synapses who are all of us who are connecting in that Holly White way. And when we connect, things happen, you know, and, and the, the energy is shared, the energy is traded, the energy is moved along. And when we have people who are not isolated, um, who are bashing into each other in good ways, and sometimes bad things come out of it. And that's where the energy is. And of course, that was the tragedy of COVID, which was basically that shutdown, you know, and we're still slowly, I think, getting back to creating that again. But that that was if you were going to pick something to pull the plug on on a functioning city, that that was it. It's stopping connection. I love that metaphor of the sort of the city as a brain um, and the way the different parts are serving different functions. They're all interconnected through these you know, networks. Uh, it also seems like a really apt m- metaphor because I think all of us have felt the sluggishness in our brains because of COVID to think of that shutdown, shutting off those connections and that kind of uh, the malaise or the fatigue of that COVID time that's uh, in some ways playing out in our, each of our heads is also kind of playing out in the city. Right. I mean, the city that that metaphor I came to of, of of a brain kind of just with all of us being individual synapses and, and going back to that Holly White idea of, of connection of, of the city really functioning at a high level when you just have people banging into each other, creating good things, bad things sometimes. But it is it's the energy of, of the city. And yeah, COVID really was the the worst possible thing you could imagine um, in a situation like this was that it just killed. We'd spent so much time years, decades, creating connection, right? I mean, in a fundamental way, that is the work of what the city's trying to do, what church communities are doing. All kinds of groups around the city are about creating connection. They're about involving people. The deepest poverty in the city is a matter of connection, right? It's making sure someone's looking in on people, about about knowing that they're okay, right? And, And COVID was just a way of blowing all of that up. And so I think we really still are working our way slowly towards reconnecting with with people. And um, I I think it is important when we talk about crime, people's reluctance to come back into the city. I think there is a certain we need to think in terms of those connections again and, and not just in that 70 sense of I need to run inside and lock the door. You know, um, we really do need to be looking out there and saying, why are these things happening? Why are these people here in this state? Why, why are we like this right now? And I mean, if there was a positive aspect to COVID, and that was when I was finishing the book. You know, I hadn't expected to be finishing this book in the face of that, but it was that we were asking some big questions about cities. You know, we were asking questions about how they should work in the future. Are they working? And it is sad to me that we look now and housing prices are just. Crazy Eddie, you know, they're insane, where they're really untouchable. And that's a terrible problem. That that is, if anything is going to kill us more than COVID, it's going to be turning this into, you know, snowpiercer, some you know, magical dystopian place where you've got rich people up here and everyone down there, which people have been talking about for decades since the 70s. But we really are physically seeing it when we talk about um, you know, super talls and things like that, where you literally have people living above everyone else. 
we all need to ask those questions and 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 make those and take those actions about these things and in, in, in kind of our daily lives. And that was something that I really got out of the book was looking at um, as much as we talk about, you know, we're talking about the groups and the in the networks. A lot of the things that happen in this book and over these 40 years are the result of people who are obsessed with things. People who are just who say, I really see a way to change this. I see what we need to do. And I'm going to just grab this bone and, and stick with it. And there are so many people who make so many profound changes by their commitment and their obsession. And, you know, I'm not it, obviously we can't all do that. I think that's that kind of that you can change the world thing is 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 a bit hopeful, you know, but you can find those people, you know, and and finding those people and lending yourself to them um, as opposed to pretending that, you know, tweeting something is going to actually this one's going to move the needle, folks. You know, I mean, giving our time and, and actual service to people who really are moving forward um, and, and trying to do things is part of our job here is I think people who live in the city. How does knowing the city's story, as you've told it here, help us better understand how to move forward? You know, I think one of the things we rarely take in, into, you know, into account in, in cities and things like that is, is generation, is time passing. You know, me when 1980s is not me now. And, and, and the people who you're looking at um, in 1985 are not who they are now. And the people who are running companies and buying buildings aren't even born at that point, you know? And, and so it's, we have to not look at that as a, as a static, you know, that, that people do change. And one of the jobs of a, a history or whatever this is, is to kind of give those people some background um, and help them maybe not feel like they need to rediscover everything that people have done some of this work and that in the face of change, which is the whole job of cities and a good living city is a thing that's always changing, right? I mean, it's a swampy beckoned kind of places, you know, I mean, that's where things come from, but it can also be um, dislocating and you can spend a lot of time if you don't know what has happened and being able to come up with ideas that can work, you know, the housing, crisis in the 80s, amazing people did amazing work and created crazy numbers of connections that I don't know if many people don't know about. So a lot of the work is generational of, of looking at people who are in their 20s and 30s. And, and rather than, you know, bike Twitter, which is basically a bunch of people yelling at each other in, in a phone booth, you know, that we need to help people look at the city in a much more connected way to try to look at systems as opposed to just hobby horses and see how, okay, I like bikes. I have a city bike guy. How does that fit into everything? You know, how does that fit in with people, you know, think holistically and big about the city. And I think that's, you know, rather than your friends who do all the things that you like together and you're positive, they're right, which is what people have been doing forever. Think about Make that multiculturalism vision, you know, come to life. Who's not in this room? Who are we not talking to? And opposed, you know, as opposed to seeing that as as um, a, a problem or you know a, as a plus or as an enemy, it's that's it is a problem to be solved. They need to be in the room with you somehow. You know, and I'm talking about a New York level. I'm not talking about Congress. I'm talking about your neighborhood. You know. How do we make those changes in our neighborhood? How do we talk about 
you know, a, a homeless shelter in our neighborhood in a way that is not purely um, defending my tax values, you know, but or you know my real estate value. But how does it make this neighborhood work? And does it is it how we want it to be? You know, how do we answer these things? So that relies on creating networks or connections at the very least that involve more people than just the ones you're familiar with. And so, I mean, I'm hopeful. Um, I have two kids in their 20s and one of them's in city government. And it's encouraging to see how many people around her are in this generation who really are out there working. But like so many other things in the world right now, that sense of, of that kind of media, social media sense of, of how things really get done is more dislocated than ever. And it is not done by just tweeting and holding up a sign. It's a lot of hard work, conversation, engagement. Um, I think it's one of the reasons why I'm very inspired in this book by Saul Alinsky, who shows up in really both of my books, or at least his work. Um, community organizing is to me enormous. It's a huge story in this city and community development. And that is done by bringing together people who aren't, you know, aren't necessarily um, on the same team, but you bring them together to achieve a goal. And that Alinsky sense of 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 practicality, of of, of, of kind of just tangibility. Let's get something done, and we'll worry. You know, we're not going to worry about the politics. We're going to try to get a stop sign. We're going to try to get fair pricing at the grocery store. We're going to look at housing and see what we can do and how we do it. And we're going to look at it through the prism of our neighborhood in this place. And, and we that needs to be supported, respected. And, and honestly, it's out there. I can't tell you how many groups I know of that are out there that are around, but they don't get the, the that's not, it's not, it, it's hard to portray. It's hard to, it, it's, it's seen as something less, I think, in the media, but I think it's the lifeblood of the city and it's where good things happen. You know, uh, let me ask you one final question here, and this is speculation. So if you're uh, comfortable speculating, I'll ask you to do that. But, you know, New York is a unique city in, in North America or in the United States. Um, how, how much do you think the sort of um, social networking theory and the idea of the sort of local community development work and things that are so important in the book and kind of historically in the city of New York, how how, um, how much do you feel like those principles apply to people who are living in Dallas or living in Chicago or living in Phoenix or L.A. in different cities that have such a different tone and temperature? Are the principles of how we bring about change in those cities uh, for the better and for the worse, pretty much the same, do you think? Or is it is this a unique case? I mean, no, I, I think they're very applicable in, in cities. I mean, it's something I think that kind of, of certainly you talk about community activism, community development, you are talking about literally places where there are communities. You know, I think the issue that where it's hard is in places that used to have that. You know, I know organizers who are trying to work in West Virginia and Ohio and places that used to have thriving downtowns and communities and sewing them back together again, creating these kinds of organizations is next to impossible. Um, there is the one thing that we haven't mentioned, and I think we need to, is immigration um, and how important that is four cities, how crucial it was in the whole story of New York over these years. But that does bring us very much into questions of, of networks and people coming into networks and building cities based on networks and how you transition from one to another, the kind of cultural one into the city at large. And in places where contact is not 
you know, valued. If you're living out in 500 acres, you know, doing great work, you know, but human contact and connection is of a very different nature than it is in a city where when you go get your bacon, egg, cheese and your newspaper, you're already seeing more people than some people are going to see for a week. Right. And I think it is an urban thing. I think the, the issues you can kind of get into the weeds about density and zoning and things like that. You know, when you talk about a Houston or Chicago, all these different cities, and you're really then talking about the statistics and the data and kind of the technical aspects of, of how do we create that kind of energy. So I do think that any city has that possibility in it, you know, and we're really just talking about how to make it happen. There's so much in here. I wish we could have had more time to unpack, I encourage everyone. Um, especially New Yorkers, but everyone who's listening to pick up uh, New York, New York, New York by Thomas Dija. And thank you very much for being with us today. Thank you for having me. It was great. Thomas Dija's new book, New York, New York, New York, is available wherever books are sold. I'm partial to bookshop.org. Next time on the podcast, we have guest Andrew Cate from Sydney, Australia, who argues that in order to reach our cities with the gospel, we have to think smaller, not bigger, in terms of subsidies and neighborhoods. You won't want to miss it. How to Reach the West Again is a production of Redeemer City to City. Tim Keller's presentation on City Theory was recorded by Andrew Walker. Today's interview was recorded at Gotham Production Studios in New York City. Everything was edited by Lee Jerkins. The episode was produced, written, and hosted by Brandon O'Brien. Our associate producer is Braden Gregg. Redeemer City to City is a nonprofit organization co-founded by Tim Keller and supported by generous people like you. If you've enjoyed this episode and would like to hear more, please subscribe to the podcast on your favorite platform, leave us a review, and consider making a gift to support the work at www.redeemercitytocity.com slash give.